Well, good morning. If you would, uh, please turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew 21. <clears throat> we have a short passage, just verse 18 through 22. Uh, first, I will uh, say a quick word of prayer. So bow your heads, please. Father, we do thank you that you have given us your word, that you have revealed yourself to us. And we ask that you would speak to us now, that you would bless us and... Uh, Grow us in our faith and our love for you. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Matthew 21, verse 18 through 22. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, It will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive, if you have faith. Here at Christ Church, we've been preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. And here in chapter 21, Jesus has been on his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. After a confrontation with the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, Jesus withdraws to the city of Bethany uh, to lodge. And Bethany was less than two miles uh, from Jerusalem, so it's a nearby city. And our passage picks up with the story from the next morning. Uh, Jesus was on his way back to Jerusalem, and he was hungry. That's why he goes to this fig tree. And so this hunger demonstrates the humanity of our Lord. He endured Real human desires, just like us, and pains, and he felt the desire to eat. And so Jesus sees a fig tree by the wayside, and he wants to eat from it. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a fig tree. Uh, They're not as common in the United States. Uh, They were common in the ancient world, both in Greece, uh, Rome, and in the Middle East, and still to this day. And they have green leaves. Uh, They can become quite large, and they have a fruit uh, called a fig. Uh, Many of you have probably never tried a fig, apart from, of course, fig newtons. And fig newtons are actually a pretty good cookie, in my opinion. But um, that being aside, uh, figs are mentioned all throughout the Bible. Uh, There's actually a fig tree in the Garden of Eden. And in Genesis 3-7, after Adam and Eve sinned, when they ate of the forbidden tree and they knew that they were naked, it says that they sewed fig leaves together and they made loincloths. So they actually did that from a fig tree. And so Jesus, he goes up to this fig tree hoping to find some figs to eat, but all he finds are leaves. But here's the strange thing. Instead of just moving on, Jesus has some words for this fig tree. Right? He says, or he curses it. He says, may no fruit ever come from you again. These are... Strong words. And the fig tree withers at once. This fig tree was promising as it had leaves. 
It looked like it may be in season or on its way to producing fruit, but it did not have fruit. It was barren. And so Jesus curses the fruitless tree so that it never produces fruit. It is now worse than fruitless. It was dead. We will look at the disciples' uh, question shortly about why this happened. Uh, But first we must ask, why is there a story here about a fruitless fig tree? This can seem a little strange, maybe even out of place, at least at first reading. But we know that the gospel writers have a purpose in how they arrange things. Uh, This story is not just about a fig tree and faith. Uh, It is about those things, but there's more going on. I think that's clear from the context. The context shows us that the fig tree is symbolic. It's particularly symbolic of Israel as a nation. We can see this from the context. The the prior section, uh, chapter 21, verses 12 through 17, is about Jesus driving out the corruption of the temple in Jerusalem. This is a famous story. And during this time, the chief priests and the scribes uh, of Israel... The Jewish leaders, they're often called, they become indignant. They're angry that the people were praising the son of David. That's in verse 15. Uh, Then Jesus leaves them and he goes outside the city uh, to Bethany to lodge. And and this picks up our story uh, in verse 18. Story of the fig tree. But after this, uh, the rest of the context, um, starting in verse 23... We see that Jesus goes back into the city of Jerusalem and enters the temple, and the chief priests and elders, they come to Jesus and they're challenging him. And this will be preached on later, so I won't get too much into the details, but they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? And then Jesus comes back with his own question about John the Baptist. Where where does uh, uh, the baptism of John come from? And he traps him, and, and they have no answer for him. Um, at least not one that won't get them, get them into trouble with the, the people. And so then Jesus gives parables, uh, two parables, and they're both about Israel. And uh, there's the, in verse 32, there's the parable of the two sons, uh, which condemns the Jewish people for not repenting when John came. And then there's the parable of the tenants that condemns uh, the Jewish people for killing God's servants, which are, is pointing to the prophet, or symbolic of the prophets, and then his son, right? They kill his son, it says, in the story that's, of course, referring to the Christ, to Jesus. And I actually want to read some of these words from the parable of the tenants, uh, picking up in verse 40, because I think they help explain what's going on here. And Jesus asks, he says, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, the people, that is. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And then Jesus says, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Now what people is he referring to? He's he's speaking of... The kingdom being taken from Israel, because they reject the Christ, and it will be given to the Gentiles. And then it says that the chief priests and the Pharisees perceived that he was speaking about them. So, that, that's clear the context here. So, why do I bring all this up? Well, it's clear from the context of Matthew 21 that 
this chapter is all about Israel's rejection of Jesus and Jesus' subsequent rejection of Israel. Thus, the fig tree in Matthew 21 is symbolic of Israel and the coming judgment. And this is a judgment foretold by Jesus, particularly in Matthew 24. And so this will come up in the, in the coming weeks, where Jesus speaks about the destruction of Israel's temple in 70 AD. And so this is an important event in uh, religious history because it was uh, after the coming of Christ, after the apostles, but you have this judgment upon the city of Jerusalem and the temple being destroyed. And so this, this connection is even clearer in the parallel passage in Mark 11. In Mark's gospel, uh, this story of the fig tree is actually split up. And it has the cleansing of the temple in between. So what happens there is Jesus curses the fig tree, then he cleanses the temple, and then Jesus and the disciples pass by the fig tree and see that uh, it's withered and Jesus talks about faith. And so you see that there's even this connection with the temple here uh, with the fig tree. And so I think the context is clear here, um, that the gospel writers are communicating contextually that the fig tree here is all about Israel. It's symbolic of Israel, and Jesus' cursing of the fruitless fig tree points to his cursing of unbelieving Israel because it rejected the Christ. Uh, The Jews as a people overall had rejected the, the, the Christ, and they were fruitless, this is seen most clearly in their leaders, right? That tends to be the emphasis in the Gospels, is the scribes and Pharisees. But it still would include the masses to some extent. There, of course, were exceptions amongst the Jewish people, such as the disciples, who were Jewish, and many uh, Jews who believed in Christ, and they became Christians. We see this especially at Pentecost, right, in the book of Acts, uh, Acts 2. But enough did not believe, uh, enough that Jesus brought judgment upon Israel as a nation, and as I mentioned, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Now, figs. I talked a little bit about figs, but figs have rich symbolism in Scripture. Uh, There's actually way more. I started looking this up, and I was like, wow, figs are mentioned in the Bible way more than I thought. And so maybe keep that uh, in mind as you read the Bible. Uh, There's a lot of symbolism here. Healthy fig trees are a sign of God's favor. Right, uh, great example of this is Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 7 through 9. Uh, this is a passage about the promised land. Right, the, Israel was going to enter uh, the land of Canaan. Uh, and it says there, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees, and pomegranates, land of olives, uh, olive trees and honey. So we often think of you know, the land of milk and honey, but, but fig tree is also a sign of blessing. On the contrary, the destruction of fig trees is a sign of God's judgment. And a good passage here would be Jeremiah 5, verse 15 through 17. So fig trees come up a lot in the prophets. It says there, Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Uh, it's probably referring to Babylon here. Um, a foreign nation is going to come and judge the Jews. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees. Right, so we have that kind of language. 
It's the symbolism of figs and fig trees. As I said, in cursing the fig tree, Jesus was symbolizing his curse against Israel and all who do not produce fruit, who do not have faith. So I think this is an important point that while the Gospels recount the teachings and work of Jesus our Savior, and that's how we often think of them, they also present Jesus' prophetic ministry of impending judgment upon Israel. Jesus is a prophet. He's more than a prophet, but Jesus is a prophet, and like the prophets of old, he announced Israel's destruction unless they repent. And this ought to serve as a warning for us today as well. Jesus cursed the people of Israel, God's chosen nation. Why? Because they rejected the Messiah, the Christ, and his salvation. They were unbelieving. The Jews were God's covenant people. Think of that. They had the sign of the covenant, circumcision. They had the promises of the covenant. But that alone did not save them. They needed faith in God, the good fruit produced by a good tree. So what this means for us is that it is not enough to be baptized, the covenant sign, and make a profession of faith in Christ. It's not enough to be part of the gathered church, at least in appearance, right? We can come to church, but that alone does not save you. You need faith in Christ. It's faith that saves you. So, this, let this tree serve as a warning for all of us. Beware if you are not bearing fruit for Christ. God does not require perfect living or even perfect faith, but true faith in Christ will affect how we live. And this starts with how we speak of our Lord. Right, you cannot be like the Jewish scribes and Pharisees who question Jesus' authority. Right, we see that here. They're constantly questioning Him, challenging Him. That's a sign uh, of uh, lacking faith. On the contrary, you must submit yourself to Jesus' lordship and worship him. That's what genuine faith looks like, is worshiping Christ. Jesus gives a parable in Luke 13, uh, verse 6 through 9. This is a, also involves a fig tree that did not bear fruit and is in danger of being cut down. So I'll read this. It's, it's quite short. It says, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it uh, use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure, fertilizer. Then it should come bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So this is a, uh, you know, Warning passage as well, but I think this also shows God's patience, right? Uh, God is patient. He's, he bears with us even in times of unbelief. And so this withered fig tree from Matthew 21 serves as a warning for all of us, who are all who are not bearing fruit for Christ. We must have genuine faith in, in Jesus and his saving work, his death on the cross and his resurrection. But here's the good news, as I said. God is patient. Maybe you have never believed in Christ. Or maybe like many of us, our faith is weak. And sometimes we question. Question where we're at. Well, Jesus is giving you a warning and he's calling you to repent and turn to him. 
But there's more here. The good news in our passage is that in addition to this great warning of the fig tree, there's also a great promise, and that is the promise of faith. And so let us look to this great promise. When we look at the disciples' reaction to Jesus' miracle of withering the fig tree, we see that the disciples were not concerned that the fig tree was fruitless. That wasn't their focus, right? What was their focus? They say, uh, verse 20, how did the fig tree wither at once? Right? They're, they're, they're obsessed with this, uh, the fact that Jesus made the fig tree wither, the miracle that took place. So Jesus answers them. And his answer reveal, reveals that he did the miracle by faith. And he tells the disciples that they can do likewise. Uh, let's read these again, verses uh, 21 and 22. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. But how does faith wither a fig tree? Well, it's not faith as a thing in and of itself, right? Faith is an instrument. So the real question is faith in what or faith in whom? What is the object of faith? And I think that's clear. Faith is in God. God is the one who carries out the miracle by his power. And if you have faith in God and do not doubt, you can wither a fig tree. But not just that. You can tell the mountain to be thrown into the sea. These are quite the words. The reference to moving mountains was already mentioned in Matthew 17, 20, a few chapters earlier, uh, when the disciples were unable to cast out a demon. And the disciples asked Jesus uh, why they couldn't do this. And he says, Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, so even a small amount, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Surely Jesus is speaking in hyperbole here. Why would God throw a mountain into the sea at our request? Who are we to ask God to do such a thing? Jesus is not teaching us to pray whatever we want uh, apart from God's will. I think that's important to emphasize. Rather, our prayers must be in accord with God's will. We know this from plenty of other texts. Uh, 1 John 5, 14 through 15. John there writes, This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So we must ask according to God's will. And I think Jesus' final statement in verse 22 is is what he's really getting at. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So this is quite the promise. God answers our prayers. That's his promise. God hears our prayers. So I want to end here with two points of application in reference to this. The first is that you must ask God in prayer. Are you praying? It's easy for Christians, for us, to become lazy in our prayers. We get busy in life. 
We let this crowd out our time in seeking the Lord. But for God to answer our prayers, we must first pray. As simple as that is. We must set time aside regularly to pray. And for most people, I think this is best in the morning when our minds are fresh, we're less distracted uh, before we start checking our phones and uh, email and these things. Uh, Also, it's good to pray before meals uh, when we come together in thanks. So are you praying? But we must also ask, what are you praying? God is also concerned with what we say to Him, what we ask. And we know in line with the Lord's Prayer and the Psalms, we, we know that God wants our prayers to include praise, thanksgiving, confession of sin, and also supplication. All the things we do in a worship service. But Jesus is particularly speaking of supplication here, right? Making requests of God, asking Him to do things. And so we must also ask, are you asking God for big things? Jesus, as we said, He even speaks of moving mountains. Whatever you ask in prayer, you'll receive. Earlier in the book of uh, Matthew... Uh, Chapter 7, verse 7 and 8, he said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. And then Jesus follows that saying, God loves to give good gifts to his children. Right? He loves to answer prayer. Jesus wants us to pray boldly. That's the point. He wants us to ask God for the seemingly impossible. So I want you to think of things that that you should be praying for. Maybe that's praying for a broken relationship to heal, right? A friendship or a marriage. Or maybe for God to provide a spouse. Maybe that's praying for unbelieving family uh, members to to come to know Christ. Family members, maybe you've never shared the gospel with them or you haven't prayed for them. Ask God to save them. Maybe it's a a bad habit you have that you need to break. Or maybe it's praying for a nation to turn around from what appears to be a very dark path. I think this is something the church ought to be praying for at this time. God is able to do all these things. But we need to ask Him. We as His people need to ask God to work. God loves to answer bold prayers. And this ties with our second point. You must not only ask God in prayer, but you must have faith. You must pray in faith. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive, if you have faith. Right? There's a condition to this promise. Not only must we ask, but we must ask in faith. So we have to ask, what is faith? Well, first... We must have the proper content of faith. Our faith must be directed towards the triune God of the Bible. And we must embrace His commands and promises. But we know faith is more than just knowing the truth, right? As James 2 says, even the demons believe the truth. We must exercise a trust that God will do what He says He will do. That's faith. We must trust that God will forgive our sins, just as he says he does when we ask. We must trust that he will raise us to new life, as he has promised in his word. 
And we must trust that God will answer our prayers. To have faith in God means to expect that God will provide whatever we need. But we cannot doubt. Did you catch Jesus' words in verse 21? If you have faith and do not doubt. Doubt is the opposite of faith. John Calvin says of this passage that it is exceedingly adapted to point out the power and nature of faith, that it is a certainty, relying on the goodness of God, which does not admit of doubt. For Christ does not acknowledge as believers any but those that are fully convinced that God is reconciled to them, and do not doubt that he will give what they ask. So that's faith, certainty, trusting the Lord. Why does God work through faith? Because God loves to bless his children. right? And he loves to, to bless those who really want it. God does not want us to bring half-hearted requests. He wants us to answer, or he wants to answer those who really believe he is God and that he will act as such. And that kind of faith is pleasing to God. And so we'll close with this. Summarizing our passage, a lack of faith was the problem with Israel. Right, bringing it back to the fig tree. Israel did not believe in God's Messiah, and thus the Messiah brought judgment upon them. But we do not have to be like the fruitless fig tree that withered. God calls us to trust Him, and in believing, He not only saves us, but He also works great things in our lives. So let us, even now, go to Him in prayer. Bow your heads. Father, we do come to you in prayer knowing that you hear us, that you want us to pray, and that you honor a faith that you will do what you have said you'll do. So we want to pray big things. Help us to pray. Help us to trust you, to pray in faith. And we pray that you would answer those things and bring us great joy in this life. We look to you, O Lord. Help us. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.